electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report, everybody. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center of the sour, the big market call from legendary hedge fund manager David Tepper. The bullish signs he sees for stocks, what that means to your money right now. We debate that with our investment committee today. And with me for the hour on this International Women's Day, Stephanie Link, Hightower Chief Investment Strategist. Carrie Firestone, the CEO of Arias Asset Management. Courtney Gibson, president of Loop Capital Markets. Bryn Talkington, managing partner, requisite capital management. Jenny Harrington, the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. And Shannon Sakosha, she is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. Ladies, good to see everybody. Let's go to the wall. Let's take a look at where we stand. You know, they've been talking about it this prior hour. Dow Jones Industrial Average, not all that far away. 75 points or so, 79 points from a all-time intraday high, so we're watching that today. But really, Steph, it is about these David Tepper comments today that turned the market and really leaves us where we are now. Major market risk removed. Very difficult to be bearish on stocks right now. Thinks the sell-off in Treasuries has been driven, um, that has driven higher rates is likely over. These are the comments that he gave Joe Kernan earlier today. I think rates have temporarily made the most of the move. Bullish catalyst for stocks in the near term is fiscal stimulus as well. Sounds right up your alley. (laughs) It is right up my alley. I would be very happy, Scott, if uh, short term, if rates and bond yields just stabilized a little bit. We're up 60 basis points in five weeks time. And we've talked about this endlessly, that it's the speed that we care about, uh, because I believe rates are going up for the right reasons, meaning growth is getting better, stimulus is working. But medium term, long term, as I just mentioned, I think the stimulus will work. We're going to do $3 trillion worth of stimulus in fiscal this year versus $2 trillion last year. If you combine fiscal and monetary policies, together. It's 55% of U.S. GDP. I mean, it's unprecedented. Historically, we've been about 4 5% if you combine the two uh, kinds of stimulus measures. Uh, so I think, and by the way, the Fed comments last, last week were really very accommodative. So I do think all of this stimulus is going to lead to better growth. It is going to lead to better jobs and better earnings. And oh, by the way, more inflation. Right now, unit labor costs are zero. So we don't have to worry about that. But commodities, we've talked about all kinds of commodities that are up double, triple digits. So we've got to watch that. But when you see better growth, when you see a little bit more inflation, you actually do tend to lean more towards cyclicals. Value tends to outperform. And that's exactly what's happening. And so that's why I am 70 percent positioned in terms of economically sensitive companies and cyclicals in general. Yeah. Carrie, look, it's not like the market's not still sensitive to interest rates, regardless of of Tepper's comments. I mean, we're, we're sort of seeing it now. Ten years, 160. The Nasdaq starts to sell off. His point, though, is that, you know, rates have temporarily made the most of the move, that the sell-off in treasuries that have driven rates higher is likely over. That's the key, that you're not going to get a runaway move, he doesn't think, in, in rates. Yields keep going up to the point where it just makes stocks a no-own. 
So, um, Scott, first of all, thank you very much for having us all on. And I'm thrilled to be with this panel of very accomplished women for International Women's Day. If you talk about what the Markle is struggling with right now, it's this battle over whether the improvement in GDP, which is going to happen from all this stimulus and a recovery, which will lead to higher earnings and generally will lead to higher prices of stocks, is more than enough to offset whatever negative implications from higher rates you get with pressure on multiples and valuations. And that struggle has been going from week to week. We know that value and cyclicals have been outperforming since September, so almost six months. But in the last couple of weeks, we have not only daily changes, but huge intraday changes, such as on Friday. And we believe that, as David Tepper has mentioned, there's been such dis, dis, um, uh, economy between what's going on with growth stocks and value stocks, that there's an attractive level of growth stocks right now because we're starting to see the improvement in earnings that's going to come through. And if you have a thousand basis points difference between growth and value in the S&P, you know, we think there are opportunities there. I'd also just like to show this one table, considering I'm the oldest person on this panel today, in 1983, how many CEO women there were in the S&P 500. Two. And where we are now, we're up to 41 women CEOs. That's a big change. It's only 8%, but we're making moves in the right direction. We are, and we need more. That's, that's the bottom line. Your point's well taken. Um, it's great. It really is great having all of you um, with us today. Uh, uh, Courtney, so... Let's take it the next step then, okay? If, you know, if you think Tepper's right, he also mentioned Amazon, right? He says Amazon's starting to look attractive after the pullback. You know, I'm wondering what else he thinks looks attractive after the pullback. I'm wondering what you think looks attractive after the pullback when you consider that stocks that you like, you know, Square and PayPal, for example, Square's 25% off of its high, PayPal's 24% off of its high, is it time now? Is it safe enough to buy those stocks or add to them? Hey, Scott, great to see you and great to see all these amazing women today. I just I can't stop smiling, as you know. What I will tell you is what I've told you before. We are in a digitization economy. Our world continues to move towards digitization and technology. So no matter what the stock is, I don't care if you're talking about Target, I don't care if you're talking about Walmart, if you're talking about Square, PayPal, you name it, the underpinnings of technology are huge. So do I think right now someone should be buying PayPal and Square? Absolutely, I can give you a, at least a few good reasons for that right now, right? When we reopen, people think, oh, well, because of you know the fact that we've been closed, people have been using Venmo and Cash App, that's not suddenly going to stop. You aren't even going to need your wallet going into the store when you can go back into the stores for the account for the places that have been closed and will reopen. That's not going to slow down. It will continue to accelerate and that will become our new normal. I also believe that when you think about what some of these companies are doing to maneuver and move, I mean, look at what Jack Dorsey did with Tidal. He's getting into streaming and he's putting who on the board? Jay-Z. 
What does that do that connects you to a whole demographic and a marketplace that you didn't have before? So I think, you know, a lot of these tech companies that have pulled back tremendously over the past week or so are buying opportunities. When Square dropped down between by about 203, I think it was, that's when I jumped back in. I had to. So pay attention and stay tuned because there are tremendous opportunities right now. You do, though, Court, care about some of these stocks. It's not like just, you know, close your eyes and buy everything that pulled back 25 or 30 percent. No. Right. I mean, you saw sold out of Peloton um, a while back and, I did. Be, you know, in part, uh, I think you said at the time because of their supply chain issues and their delivery exactly. issues and the delays that we've seen taking place. So there there are fundamental stories behind some of these pullbacks that maybe don't make them court jump in right now buys like the squares and the PayPal's exactly. and some of these other names that you've signaled to as well. It is no longer a rising tide lifting all boats. Um, I, the only index, if you will, or an ETF that I own is, is EEM for the emerging markets, just because my expertise isn't there, but I do know that the global growth story will continue and that's a place that I wanna be. But when you think about the US markets right now, and as, as we've talked about kind of the divergence in where we're seeing valuations and um, right now, uh, the opportunities that are there, it is a stock picker's market. So yes, I'm buying Square and I'm buying PayPal. I'm, buy I'm keeping Facebook. I'm not necessarily adding to certain names in my portfolio, but I am adding to those names that I think have a long-term growth opportunity and growth story in what will be a tremendous 2021. Bryn Tepper, is he right? Is now a, a, a bullish time for stocks for, for the reasons that he says? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it's very bullish. I think he is right. I think about the let's just digest what he said about treasuries. I think it's critically important because, you know, the past couple of weeks we've had some really strange things happening in the repo and the 10 year treasury market as the market was actually short. And I think that's going to be coming back online. And if you look at, you know, our 30 year treasury trades at three times what the 30 year Japanese government bonds do. And so I do agree that you could have the Japanese, even after currency hedging, are going are gonna to have a positive carry. And I think that's going to put a lid in addition to all of this stimulus that we have coming soon to a theater near you is going to be the infrastructure bill. The Fed has to keep rates low on the long end. And so I don't think yield curve control is out of the question. And so I definitely think he's right. I think, you know, yields have gone so fast so quickly, but I don't think we're going to go into a 10 year with a, a two and a half percent, probably two percent before the Fed comes in. And that's going to be positive for stocks. And I still think don't don't count growth out, count it out for the next quarter or two. But you definitely want to have some growth in your portfolio longer term. Yeah, leave it to Tepper to put some perspective on what's going on and, and you know, make everybody think about where we really are, Jenny, and where we may be going from here, as I said, you know, even if you do think he's right, a move in interest rates is going to have an impact on these technology stocks. It's the, it's the number one question I get on, on Twitter or email or just simple questions from people around and about. Do you think there's more pain in these growth stocks, the kinds of which that a lot of people have bought and invested in and love now worrying about where they're going to go from here? I think the story of 2021 and 2022 is going to be nuance. And so we can't say things like there's room to go in growth stocks, right? We can't look at growth stocks 
as purely a factor. We need to understand that there's philosophy behind talking about being a value investor or a growth investor. And so if you think about the philosophy behind being a growth investor, there's always opportunity. And it's like Kramer says, you know, there's always a bull market somewhere. You can always find growth stocks to invest in, but you need to be very careful because as um, shoot, who said it? I think Courtney said it earlier. The, the rising tide isn't going to ri raise all boats this year. So that's important. So when you look at growth stocks, you need to differentiate between, between what all went up last year, the DocuSigns, the Teladocs, the Pelotons, the Apples, the Amazons, the Googles, and be very picky and very careful and understand that valuation counts today. It's always counted. If for some time last year, valuation was just thrown out the window, fine, that was last year. But going forward, history is going to repeat in that valuation is going to matter. So when you're looking at growth stocks, be careful with what you own. Make sure that they're companies with real earnings, real valuations that you can actually get behind and know what you're getting into. So be careful this year. Don't just buy growth for the sake of buying growth. Yeah, because Shannon, valuations matter a, a lot in a, a different rate environment. That's what investors have learned over the last couple of weeks. That's why the market seemed to get as upset as it did. I also think there's a factor here that we've seen um, growth and momentum really trading together. And anticipating a decoupling of the growth and momentum factors should allow investors to focus on you know, what we think of in terms of quality growth. If you look at what you're anticipating for the next couple of years in terms of where you're going to get, you know, kind of maximum top line revenue and bottom line EPS growth, you know, that is that really is what underlies the valuations that you're willing to pay for stocks. And so in as much as, you know, Microsoft may be, pay, may be trading at 30 times today, um, you know, which seems somewhat expensive for a company that is as large um, as that as Microsoft is, I think you have to think about in terms of how long do you think that this that this this rotation that we're experiencing, the, this painful rotation for growth investors that we're experiencing over the last couple of weeks, how long does that exist for and persist for, which is probably not more than a couple of weeks, in my opinion. I don't disagree with Jenny. I think that this is a 2021 story. I think when we get to 2022, we're going to be looking forward in terms of a more steady, stabilized U.S. economy. And in that case, I want to look at things like enterprise spend and encouraging an encouraged consumer. I want to look at things that are going to continue to drive growth over the next couple of years. And so in this interim period, I agree a more cyclical bent makes sense. But I think that there are going to be opportunities over the next month or so to add to some of these quality growth names as these two factors decouple. OK, so I talked about and we heard what you ladies think. Now let's find out what you ladies are actually doing. Uh, because you have a lot of moves to talk about. So get your pens and papers ready at home or wherever you're watching or listening. Stephanie Link, you first. You bought more Broadcom. Tell us why. I did because I thought the quarter was outstanding and I couldn't believe the reaction to the shares. It should have been up 5%. They had 14% organic growth. They had 23% operating profit growth. They had 35% free cash flow growth. They guided higher on all of the metrics above. They're in, the, they're, they're in the places in technology I want to be, data center cloud, uh, 5G. Apple is a 20% customer, remember? So they'll benefit from that uh, super cycle. Greatest management in, in the technology space, in my opinion. Um, and they're also doing a ton of M&A, which is leading to more software versus hardware, which will help margins over time. So 
I'll buy uh, I'll buy Broadcom all day on a down day uh, with better than expected earnings. Okay, Carrie, you bought more Home Depot, you bought more S and P Global, and Booz Allen. Tell us. So Home Depot had fantastic fantastic comps and the stock traded down great earnings great revenue guidance decent traded down because a lot of the covid beneficiary stocks have been trading down this earnings season it's at the lowest multiple relative to itself for the last decade there's no reason that they're not going to have decent numbers this year they may not be the fantastic comps store-wide comps that they've had last year but they're still going to have decent numbers and we think this is a very attractive price to buy the stock on S&P Global. S&P Global has made a couple of great acquisitions. The IH Health, uh, the, um, the, the market acquisition last year was a very strong one. It owns S&P. It does the great ratings for uh, all of the debt that we're going to be seeing and have been seeing and, and IPOs that are coming. And we think that the stock has come down to a level that we would definitely be buying. And finally, on Booz Allen, B-A-H is the ticker. It's a consulting firm. It does a lot of government work. It does security, defense, a lot of agency work. We have a new government. There will be lots of new contracts. And we think that this is the type of company with a reasonable multiple that will be uh, very strong in whatever economy we have. We know that so much stimulus is going to result in more contracts that are, will be consulting uh, jobs for Booz Allen. All right. Courtney, um, you know, you, you made reference to the EEM, right? You want to tell us why you, you bought that? What sort of what that says about where in the world you're going to make a lot of money this year? <laughs> well, um, Scott, it's so interesting, right? So at Loop Capital Markets, we cover institutional investors. And so when you talk about this cyclical trade in particular, we you and I talked about this probably in the third quarter of last year when I was buying banks. Well, the same thing is happening with EM. And I didn't have any exposure in my portfolio to non-US stocks, and I thought this was a good avenue to be able to get exposure um, in addition to some of the um, larger US multinationals that I have exposure to. But when you look at emerging markets and the growth opportunity, I think this year in January, um, it was up almost 10% or so, and it gave most of that back. And I said, well, it's time to get back in especially given kind of the thoughts around a weaker dollar and just global growth in general. They don't have kind of the stimulus and the fiscal um, monetary and fiscal stimulus that we saw here in the United States and other developed economies. Yet I think you're going to get a tremendous, tremendous boom in 2021 and beyond. Alibaba has been a controversial stock of late. What made you buy it? Well, Scott, you know, we have um, coverage of Alibaba. Rob Sanderson at Loop Capital covers the name. And in listening to him talk about the story around Baba, right, we know there's uncertainties with China. We know the regulatory concerns. But I think as we start to get and move some of those uncertainties out of the way, or at least have a better understanding of what they are, Baba's valuation is so undervalued, that company is so undervalued right now vis-a-vis -vis its competitors. I think we have a $355 price target on it, which is north of about 100 and probably 20 or so dollars from where we are today. And I think it can hit it. You think about emerging markets, you think about its presence in China and its dominance. This name should be worth substantially more than where it's trading right now. And it's trading at a discount, again, because of the uncertainties around um, China as well as the competitive landscape. But Baba's well-positioned to go up from here. Okay, I was going to ask you about another stock, but I got to give Bryn a chance to maybe weigh in. 
debate you on that? Let's go to Texas. <laughs> yeah, let's go to Texas. There you go. Why? Because, Bryn, you told us, what, I think a week ago that you sold Baba. Yeah, I, I, I just couldn't own it anymore. I mean, I think we're going to talk about the Microsoft hack later on, but, you know, that's China for you. And I think that with, well, first of all, with Alibaba specific, they own 30, 35% of Ant Group. Ant Group just got regulated out of their market. And so with the, with the very punitive um, lending standards they now have, I think that re-rates Baba lower. I think the Jack Ma disappearance, reappearance, um, whether it's optics or real, I think it's just bad. And I think that there's so many better, there's so many companies that I have real transparency of, of what's happening from a government standpoint and also a bottom up is, is I had to sell it. And so I think all the, all of the aspects that Courtney are saying are absolutely right. But I think in execution, the headwinds of the China ecosystem puts a dampener on it. And I think people are going to stay away from Baba because of that ambiguity around Jack Ma and Ant Group, especially. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, how do you counter that, Court, right? I mean, you can both be right, right? You, you laid out the, a case I that think, it's, you know, it's a cheap again. stock right now. Uh, but the things that Bryn says are legit and real issues that investors need to deal with. Of course they are. Bryn and I are in a lot of the same names and we see the world very similarly on things. But if two people have the same opinion on everything, one of them's irrelevant. And I do believe that Baba, again, for me personally in my personal portfolio, it's a name that fits. I can ride it out. I like the market that they're in. I like the potential for the company and I like China. And so for me personally, I can, you know, take my Alka-Seltzer and, and ride with it for a <laughs> while. Whereas Bryn said she just had to kind of get off the train and that's okay. Um, but you know, we'll see. And I hopefully I'll make a little money and hopefully Bryn made some money on that last trade. Yep. All right. How about, how about Walmart court, which you bought more of? I did. I definitely did. I mean, they had, you know, Walmart doesn't often get a blip on the earnings radar. We know what happened after they reported. And the name went through, you know, well below where it should have been trading. I think right now it might be trading at 25 times or 27 times. But ultimately, Walmart is a name you hold. So if you liked it when all the stores were closed, you have to love it now that it's open and they've begun to digitize their platform. I mean, look at what they're doing online. Look at their ability to do pickups. Look at how they have pivoted in just under a year and the acceleration in their platform. I mean, Walmart as a huge big box retailer, which is, is effectively, it gives you kind of a glimpse into the whole economy when you think about it. If you believe that we're going to have a great 2021 and all this stimulus money is going to be spent and everyone's going to spend that check that they get, you know they're going to go to Walmart, right? You have to know that Walmart is going to do well next earnings quarter. So if you didn't get in, you might have a little bit of a window here, but Walmart's going back up. You don't have much time. All right. So let me just note for you that the Dow has hit that new record intraday high. The 32,009 was the old one. It's eclipsed that, fallen back by a few points. But it's a gain of better than 500 points. Uh, Steph, you know, it's so interesting. We've been so, you know, transfixed with this move in the NASDAQ over the last week. Uh, and the Dow just keeps on ticking. And it is representative of a lot of optimism about a reopen trade. Seventy percent of your portfolio is in cyclical stocks, the kinds of stocks, you know, banks, industrials, maybe some energy names, those reopen and roaring 20s kinds of trades, right? 
<laughs> Roaring 20s, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I believe, as I mentioned earlier, that the stimulus is going to work. It's going to lead to better growth. And right now, I think the consensus is about 5 6% for GDP growth. It's creeping higher. I saw a number today at 9% for GDP for this year. Um, and I wouldn't rule that out because, again, there's so much momentum and the tailwinds from all of this fiscal and monetary policies that have been put in place. And, oh, by the way, we've talked about this. It usually takes about a year to get into the system in, in full. So we started this whole process last March. So we're going to start to really see some very strong tailwinds, some good growth, good earnings. And that's why I want to own the cyclical companies. And, by the way, I mean, I've been nibbling at them lately, but I was really buying them in the summer, quite frankly. But a new name for me, we've talked about it uh, a little bit, is Prudential. Uh, the steep yield curve certainly helps them. They're the number one player in, uh, in its industry. They've got superior ROE. They've got a very strong balance sheet, 5% dividend yield. They're buying back in, in, in terms of stock and in dividends $10 billion over the next three years. Emerson Electric is another name. It's a hidden energy play with a new CEO and $15 billion in free cash flow. They're going to make a lot of different acquisitions, namely in technology. So you get energy and technology in an industrial that really hasn't done very much, especially compared to something like a Honeywell. You know I like Boeing. You know I like GE. That's the aviation recovery story. And and also reopen story, right? And I think on GE, they have an analyst day on the 10th of March. I think it's going to be very well received. And I think that stock is still very under owned. So there are pockets where I will buy here, but I was doing the, the biggest buys in the summertime when there were really a lot of bargains. Yeah, you're in the right spot uh, right now. There, there's no doubt about that. And speaking of uh, Bryn, you know, you have a fair amount of energy exposure, or at least stocks that you like your picks, the XLE, Chevron, Energy Transfer, Viper Energy, you know, Oil's been off to the races. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was on the show the first, I think January 4th, and you said, what are your, what are your best ideas? And I said, energy, um, and I gave Chevron, Viper, and then, you know, PayPal. And I also said I thought Peloton would be one of the worst performing stocks. I think that people don't understand with energy is that all of this move to make everything green and everything clean hasn't been built yet. And so what's happened is we have this like unintended consequence of we need a lot of energy as the economies are reopening, yet we haven't pivoted to anything green for the most part. We, we're, we're starting to get windmills, starting to get solar. And I think this asset class is so underowned, you really won't find it in any index to be over like one or two percent. So you have to really go out there and buy the individual names or buy the XLE. And I just continue to think as the economy improves, energy, we need oil to fly. We need oil to do everything we, we do globally, but energy will continue to have a tailwind this year. That being said, I think five years from now, will energy be a great place to be? Probably not. But I think this year you have to have some energy exposure. Ride the wave as long as you can. All right, Shan, let's get a couple of more uh, names in before we take a break. You sold Cisco, the food service company, and you bought Mondelez. Yeah, Cisco is really a reopening play. We've seen the, the stock do pretty well, um, distributor to, you know, restaurants uh, primarily. And so we've seen that move up. We don't think the EPS is really going to recover at the same pace that the stock is, is trading at right now. 
We brought Mon bought Mondelez. Um, I couldn't agree with Court anymore. We definitely want to continue to increase our international and emerging markets exposure. So Mondelez has the opportunity to grow its local brands, but it also has the opportunity to improve its margins uh, through its improvement of its distribution network. So we think there's a, a lot of opportunity here with 70% of their revenues outside of the United States. Um, and so I know it's a staples trade, but for me, this is also playing on that sort of global growth uh, acceleration that everybody's been talking about on the show today. All right, good stuff. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, the biggest trades on the biggest calls. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half right after this. Work harder and smarter than anyone. Under promise and over deliver. Keep your head down and ask questions along the way. There's no dumb question, by the way. And most importantly, don't be afraid to go for it. If you want a promotion and you think you deserve it and you have the confidence, go for it. If you think you've done a great job and, and you want to raise, go for it. Talk to people, find people that will help you and support you. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. All right, we are back. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now with three big calls on the street. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Scott. Yeah, so let's start with Coca-Cola getting an upgrade to outperform at RBC. Target goes to $60 a share. Firm believes that as the weather gets warmer, Coke will benefit from restaurants reopening. You can see shares are up almost 3%. Stock, though, has been an underperformer compared to the S&P in the past year. Although analysts do like this one, no sells here, Scott. Pivotal is upgrading VF Corp to buy. The target goes to, my dog very excited about VF Corp. Target goes to 94 from $86 a share. Analysts do like the improving trends for the North Face and Timberland brands. And for Vans, they see a benefit from reopened stores, better inventory trends, and an improving sneaker outlook. Shares are up here about 4%. And Target gets upgraded to buy at Guggenheim with the $200 price target. Analysts pointing out that they have a really hard time seeing how the retailer does not grow revenue in 2021. And that's even despite the difficult comps from the successful year they've had. This stock is up 70% in the past year and up about 2% right now. Scott, I will right. send it back to you. All right. I'm trying to figure out if that's a strong buy or a sell from the dogs, whoever, wherever that that's coming from. Uh, I don't think that was just me hearing that. All right. Shannon, thank you for help. You own Pepsi. You sold Coke last year. So you obviously like that one better. So tell me why. Well, it was early last year, Scott, to be fair. But, you know, one of the reasons we chose Pepsi over Coke after owning Coke for a very long time was that um, we felt like the international growth that was offered and the diversification with the snacks business, as well as a move away from carbonated beverages, really suited Pepsi or suited um, Pepsi better than Coke for kind of the foreseeable future. Uh, in this particular call, they're citing, you know, the return to restaurants, which, to be fair, Coke has a, a greater presence in, in in restaurant usage. And so I understand the call here. I just think for me, similar to the Mondelez play that I just spoke about, international reach um, and a more diversified portfolio just makes sense for my portfolio. Corey, you want to take the other side? You own Coca-Cola. You love this call. 
I do, I do. And I, I've loved Coke for a while, as, as you very well know. So I bought it on the dip with the understanding that a global brand like Coke is going to come back. They made tremendous changes during COVID, as well as, you know, let's just think about what they what what will happen, as Shannon mentioned, in the reopening. As all the restaurants begin to reopen again, their presence there is tremendous. So if it got knocked down, it has to come back up. And I think it actually improves profitability just simply based on some of the changes that they made within their cost structure during the pandemic. So I think Coke is well positioned and well poised under Cornell's leadership to really not only just kind of come back to where it was pre-pandemic, but also get some significant growth moving forward just on some of the shifts that we've seen, some of the acquisitions they've made. Um, you know, we can go on and on about the name, but I think it's, you know, aside from the fact I'm in Atlanta, I think there are a number of reasons that Coke is a long-term oh. Oh, play right, and should right. be in one's portfolio. I forgot. It's a Homer call. The headquarters are down there. I forgot about that. <laughs> Je Jenny, you want to you want to weigh in on that? You think you don't sure. you don't believe the hype? No. So you look at Coke and you look at the last ten years of sales, and what you see what you see is that seven of the last ten years have actually had sales declines. So while I think you could be tactical, and Bryn and I were talking about this earlier, and her thesis is that. You can be tactical because as we reopen, there's going to be tons of sales at stadiums, at concerts and all of that. That might be true, but that's short term. So this goes back to know your holding period and know what you're owning. But I look at look at this company. And I'm like, there's something wrong when a company like Coke can't grow sales for 10 years and really can't do much with earnings. I don't want to own that. I, as Steve Weiss will say, there are better places for me to lose money. <laughs> so I'm staring clear. <laughs> all right. All right. You're at, you're at odds with a few of uh, the, the other ladies today, but, you know. That's what makes as it market. usual. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Up next, the big ETFs to watch today. And as we go to break, a check of the S&P sectors a day when the Dow Jones Industrial Average hits a new intraday all time high. S&P is at the highs of the day, led by materials, financials, industrials, i.e. the cyclicals. We're back on the half right after this. I'm empowered by the fact that I believe in myself. I was one of the few women who worked uh, at Fidelity, but I thought I can put my mind to something, I can research a company as well, I can understand stocks, I can manage a portfolio as well as the guys. And I just had to remind myself of that all the time because I was so dramatically outnumbered, but I, I thought I can do it and that's what kept me going. B2B selling is tougher than ever and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. 
Within the last 30 minutes, the White House announced that President Biden will deliver a primetime address on Thursday that marks the one-year anniversary of the nation's COVID shutdown. It'll focus on the losses that Americans have suffered and how the country can return to normal. And this video released today, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri announces that he will not be running for re-election next year. He's now the fifth senator from the GOP's establishment wing to call it quits. NBC News has a copy of the Capitol Hill security report commissioned by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that's being shared with members today. It calls for increased staffing and intelligence for the Capitol Police, a permanent quick reaction force and fencing that can be put up quickly instead of creating a more permanent boundary. And here's something that you don't see every day, along with a spring training baseball game between the Chicago Cubs and the Arizona Diamondbacks fans. Also got to see a goose attack another goose, apparently trying to establish its territory in the outfield. But Scott, uh, quite a few animal appearances in your show today. Yes. Geese attacking <laughs> other geese and my dog apparently yes. making an appearance. I, I, I found the source of the dog. Yes. <laughs> Rahel, yes. thank you. That would be me. All right. It's good to see you again, Rahel Solomon. All right. Bob Pisani has our ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hey, Scott. Good to see you. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. Active management is making a comeback in the ETF space as many active mutual fund managers convert to an ETF model. But the big sector rotation this year is increasing interest in one area of active management, and that's market timing. Can you successfully move in and out of ETF sectors and make money? Let's talk to Kim Arthur. He runs the main sector rotation ETF, the symbol is SECT. Wes Krill is the vice president of research at Dimensional Fund Advisors. He's been studying the market timing efforts for decades. Kim, your sector rotation ETF moves in and out of ETF sectors, not stocks. It's outperforming the S&P 500 this year. You've got heavy bets on banks, energy, and small cap ETFs. Now, how do you decide when to rotate this portfolio? Hey, Bob, good to see you. Thanks for uh, having us on. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So what we look for, Bob, is we look at a lot of historical data. We want to have a big, big sweep of the valuations because we think that valuations do matter. And it's not only valuation, though. You, you have to have a catalyst that goes along with that valuation. So as you mentioned, since the 1st of September, there's been a massive rotation into value, size, and being small cap and cyclicals. And that's because that was when rates bottomed at that point, people realized we weren't going to have a double dip. And the catalyst for the value component is coming out of a recession, steepening yield curve, and getting a situation where you start to have positive real rates. So we, um, as you said, we, we have about half of our portfolio now that's in those cyclical value size components right now. Okay. And Wes, Dimensional Funds has spent decades studying what works and what doesn't work in overall investing. Could you tell me, is there any evidence that uh, market timing will, like the kind that Kim is doing now, actually works long term? Yeah, thanks, Bob. Yeah, I'd like to start off with a little statistic here, which is in 2020, the average daily trade volume in equity markets alone was over $650 billion. So that represents a lot of buyers and sellers coming together and setting prices. And that's kind of what you're up against when you attempt to outguess markets, whether it's picking individual stocks 
or just trying, trying to predict which segments of the market are, are going to go where at what particular time. And so consistent with that daunting proposition for investors, you know, we have about a hack, half a century of evidence, both from academics as well as practitioners, to show that by and large, investors are not able to consistently outperform markets by either picking stocks or, or trying to market time. Uh, and so that's an important thing for investors to keep in mind. It also brings about potential opportunity costs. We know that the long-term rate of growth for the market has been spectacular you know, over long periods, but missing out on some of the best days in the market, if you don't get that timing strategy perfectly well calibrated, could potentially have a deleterious effect on your overall growth of wealth. Okay, thanks very much, gentlemen. And join us, folks, at 1 p.m. Eastern time for ETF Edge, where we go into a deeper dive on using ETFs for market timing. Kim and Wes will be joined by Dave Nodding. He's the director of research at ETF Trends at etfedge.cnbc.com. Going to be a great discussion. Halftime is back right after this. My biggest influence is my mother. To see strength, dedication, passion, and excellence up close and personal was so important to shaping who I am today. She also pushed me to be the best I could possibly be, but always taught me to do it with kindness and integrity. She also picked a pretty awesome father too, I must say. All right, welcome back to Halftime. We're tracking cyber stocks after the White House warns of an active threat after the Microsoft hack. Eamon Javers here with more on a big and still developing story. Eamon. Yeah, it is still developing, Scott. The latest is over the weekend, the U.S. government warning companies that they need to check their systems and apply all of these Microsoft patches that are now available. What we know now uh, is that this is an alleged Chinese hack that hits Microsoft Exchange servers. The idea being that if you're a business running Microsoft Exchange, you might want to check and make sure that you've got the right patches in place. Initially, the experts I'm talking to said this was a very stealthy hack, but over the last week or so, it became super noisy and aggressive and that really surprised some of the researchers. Other attackers now reportedly are piling in to some of the same weaknesses. So you're getting this magnifying effect as other attackers are taking advantage of the same vulnerability and really uh, multiplying the number of entities who have been impacted by this. The New York Times said yesterday in terms of the Russian hack, remember there's the solar winds hack that's happening simultaneously that the U.S. government is responding to as well. So you have China and Russia. On the Russia situation, New York Times saying that the White House is considering covert counterstrikes on Russian networks, but an administration official told me yesterday that cyber strikes was the New York Times' characterization, not the White House characterization, uh, saying we don't know what the article specifically is referring to. So some question now whether we're going to see a U.S. administration response to Russia and now potentially to this new Chinese hack. And take a look, Scott, at some of these uh, cybersecurity stocks. You see the real time there. A lot of these cybersecurity stocks up today in the intraday, but look at the week uh, chart uh, for all of these guys in the cybersecurity sector. And what you see is they were trending down uh, through the week last week. This announcement came from Microsoft on Tuesday. Uh, you see a downward trend there and then a bounce up starting late Friday and into today for some of these cybersecurity stocks. I'll leave it to you guys to explain why that is, Scott. But interesting to me that we had this announcement from Microsoft on Tuesday. We didn't see that bounce up for the cybersecurity guys until late in the day on Wednesday. Maybe that's because that's when people started to realize the scale of this thing, and that maybe meant more business for the cybersecurity guys. Yeah. What's crazy here between this story and, as you said, the Russian story, 
Eamon, we don't have a clue. We have our right. arms are not around this threat in any way, shape or form. We know it exists. We don't have a clue in how to deal with it. Right. I mean, this is tens of thousands of businesses and entities now, uh, according to one researcher that have been impacted by this latest alleged Chinese hack. In addition to all of the entities, government agencies and everything else that were hit by the Russians, these are foreign governments who are hostile to the United States, who now have access to all kinds of sensitive corporate and government data. And the question is, what are they going to do with it? We haven't seen the impact of this stolen data yet. Are they going to replicate companies? Are they going to steal patents? Are they going to go after uh, classified uh, information and classified technology? We just don't know, but they have the data now. And the question is, you know, what are they going to do with it? And when are we going to see that shoe dropping? Yeah, unbelievable story. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers there. We'll take a quick break. Record high for the Dow. Dow's up better than 600 points. A new intraday all-time high for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, nearly 2%. Oil prices, though, they're pulling back after Brent crude broke above 70 bucks earlier today. We'll have more from the futures pits coming up next. Let's do the futures outlook. Crude falling, as I said, hitting its highest level, though, uh, today uh, since October of 2018. Scott Nations has the trade for us. We exhausted here or, or, or what? I think we are, Scott. You know, we had the spike higher, and now that the attacks in Saudi Arabia have been ineffectual, it's eased since we got that news. And, Scott, we're now set up for a really interesting technical setup. If we have a lower close today, this would be a key reversal, one of the few technical indicators I really like to pay attention to. So I would be shorting crude oil here. I'd love to sell the April contract. I originally put this together. I wanted to sell it at 65.50. It's continued to ease since then. Uh, my target, if I could sell it there, would be $64 even stop would be $66. If we do get that lower close and a key reversal, I'd be more aggressive with entering the trade. But at those levels, we'd be risking $500 to make $1,500. Okay. We'll be back with you soon, Scott Nations. Thank you. The Dow at a record high. S&P at session highs. We have final trades next. Excited to tell you that all this week we'll be trying something new at 6 p.m. while Jim Cramer is getting a little R&R. It is called on the edge, sharp opinions, the hottest takes, fierce debates about the big players and news in the business world. I'll be doing that six o'clock. Hope you will join me then. All right, let's do final trades. Stephanie Link, you're up first. Yeah, VF Corp got an upgrade today, but the stock is still down four and a half percent year to date after a dreadful 2020. So it yields 2.4 percent. It's a lifestyle play with great brands and easy comparisons ahead. I like the consumer for 2021. This is a good play on that theme. Carrie. Blackstone, BX, premier private equity company, sells for 17 times next year's earnings. 4% right. yield will benefit from better GDP and higher interest rates. Courtney. Going back to EEM, trading multiples at about 15 times, which is still higher than historical lows, but it's 23% mm -hmm. behind global growth companies right now. So we should okay. be all in it. All right. Bryn. SVAL, small cap factor ETF. 43% financials, 20% industrials, 10% consumer discretionary. Right. Great way to play the Jenny, recovery. I'm sorry. Jenny, quick. And send Shannon, quick. Fortress Transportation and Infrastructure, 4.2% yield. Okay, Shan. Arista Networks, ANET. All right, good stuff. That was fun. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now 
It's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.